Hello, and welcome to the second season of Genetically Speaking, the podcast for the American Society of Human Genetics, where we explore the human stories behind human genetics and genomics research. I'm your host, Chris Gunter. Today, we're pleased to be discussing a paper that was nominated by one of my colleagues on the ASHG Online Programming and Professional Education Working Group. This paper was published in 2020 in the journal Science, and it's titled In Vivo Perturb-Seq Reveals Neuronal and Glial Abnormalities Associated with Autism Risk Genes. So we're lucky enough to have with us today two of the authors, Shin Jin and Aviv Regev, respectively from Harvard and then the Broad Institute, HHMI and MIT. And now Aviv is with Genentech as well. So welcome to you both and thank you for joining us. Thank you for having thank us. You. Thank you. For Absolutely. Having so to start out a little, can you tell me a little bit more about what led you to select this research topic? Um, I can start maybe. Sure. <laughs> And I think each of us will have a different perspective because in interdisciplinary Great. research, usually people come together, each of them looking at the problem with different eyes. So um, before we actually started this study, my lab was very, and still is, very interested in circuits, both in cells and between cells and tissues that really govern how cells operate in health and disease. And one of the greatest tools that we have in figuring that out, obviously known to those in ASAG, is uh, genetics. In human genetics, we do it based on natural genetic variation. But we, of course, also have lab tools that we can introduce genetic perturbations with. And the challenge for many years was that we had to know upfront what it was that we were looking for. We had to set up a readout, for example, a reporter gene or a live dead assay or an imaging assay to do that. And right before we started this study, we concluded an earlier study where we developed the perturb-seq method where we coupled a pooled CRISPR screen with single cell RNA-seq as the readout, with the idea that we would get both a very rich readout about what is going on in the cell based on its expression profile, but we also wouldn't have to choose upfront. The profile itself would let us know what is going on. And when we did that study, which we originally did in cells in culture, one of the added benefits that we had was that even if the cells were not all the same, they could be different phases, everything from different phases of the cell cycle to different subsets of immune cells, we could still figure out what was happening in which cells because single cell RNA-seq would tell us after the fact which cell was which. So that was the conclusion of that study. And we wrote a little discussion section, as you usually do, and we said, well, now you could probably use that in vivo as well, in animal models, to decipher all sorts of interesting biologies. And I was chatting with a very good colleague, Paula Arlotta, who's a great um, neuroscientist, focuses on developmental neurobiology, and, and said, you know, we have this new method, and we would be really excited about doing something that is interesting in vivo in a complex tissue. And Paula said, oh, funny that you mention it, because there is this... Uh, new wonderful junior fellow or about to start her junior fellowship. That's a, a, a role in Harvard for um, independent postdocs, Shin uh, Jin. And she has a really interesting problem that she wants to solve. And I will turn this to Shin. Yeah, um, it's interesting because this is the first time for me to hear a Venus perspective, and I like to share my side of the story. Um, I was trained as a neuroscientist, and in my PhD, I was working with C. elegans. And as you know, in C. elegans, the genetic tools are very powerful. So naturally, um, when I started my junior fellowship, even you know before I physically moved to Harvard, I started thinking about, huh, all these human genetic conundrum in psychiatric disorder, in some ways, really represent 
sense of forward genetic challenges that we saw in C. elegans. And we use the forward genetic tools again and again. And of course, the challenge in this case is that the human brain is way more complex. Mammalian cortex is very famous for its cellular heterogeneity and um, knocking out gene one at a time would be very slow and costly. And more importantly, as Aviv mentioned, we really don't know where to look at. We need the readout to be as comprehensive, holistic as possible. So I, I had this very naive idea that we have to figure out some ways to do a system screen and look at things as comprehensive as possible. And when I found um, Paola and phone my mentors, um, they quickly refer me to this paper, which came out in the year that I started my fellowship um, in 2016. Um, and the rest is history. Oh, that's great. Fact, well, she yeah, was in ASCB, I think, 2016, which was in December. That's right. And I was giving a talk there as well. And I was actually doing the proofs for that paper. Um, right when, right when Shin was receiving like a little award or prize of some Aww. sort. Um, it was kind yeah. of hilarious to think, oh, we're just about to embark on doing this uh, really cool thing together. And I will add to that, that we all felt that there was a burning question coming from human genetics, that there were, you know, it's this embarrassment of riches, too many good things in the sense of amazing possibilities yeah. of what these genes might do. We already knew they were causal. This was not about doing the screen in order to discover the gene is causal. It's causal in human. Human, gene human genetics already told us that. But the problem was, it's really difficult to figure out what they might be doing. We, you need to know in which cell to look and what mouse to make. And that didn't feel like a very scalable approach, given the magnitude of the problem in human genetics. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, they say in science communication circles that you should tell me uh, the technique like you're talking to your mother, but I don't know about y'all. My mom is actually a well-known scientist. So I'm going to change that up and say, let's pretend you're talking to my friend who's a lawyer or something like that. Tell me uh, how this is such a leap forward. And, and also, how does in vivo perturpsy work? So, Sheen, maybe I'll, I'll explain perturpsy briefly, and then you will explain how it works in vivo. So, uh, perturpsy couples two uh, great uh, advances in the last several years. The first one is the ability to very effectively um, um, remove or eliminate every gene in the genome, or stop every gene in the genome from working by using a technique called CRISPR. It doesn't actually eliminate the gene, but it makes it dysfunctional. It can no longer lead to a functional protein. Um, and the benefit of this method is that it is very precise, and it can work in very high throughput. We have about 20,000 genes in the genome, and it can actually go and in any given cell, remove one of them one at a time. So what you want to do is remove every gene, See what happens. That brings us to the second innovation, which is a method called single-cell RNA-seq. That is how we see what happens. So in our genome, genes get transcribed into RNA, which is an intermediate way in order to get to the proteins. The proteins are the business end. The DNA and the RNA are the instructions. But no, not all of our genes are used all at the same time. Only a subset of them is used. And each of these genes is used at a different level. If you're a neuron in the brain, you need neurotransmitters, and you're going to use a lot of them, so you're going to make a lot of RNA from the DNA. If you are a muscle cell, then you need these fibrous proteins that allow the muscles to contract, and you're going to make a lot of those. So by looking at which RNAs are made from the DNA, we get like a calling card for the cell. 
What is it like? Is it a neuron or a muscle cell? But also what is it doing right now? I might have a lot of sugar in my cells, need insulin, so they're going to make much more insulin than they made before. And so this is how we can see what happens. We can now look at each individual cell and profile, measure the RNA that it makes. And if it makes a lot of this or a lot of that or a little of this and a little of that, that gives us this color card, this calling card. Now, two cells that are similar to each other are going to use similar genes. So they're going to have similar profiles. Cells that are different from each other are going to look different. Now we put both of these methods together because we want to run this experiment in what you can think of as one big pot or a pool. We want to take a lot of cells. There could be millions of cells. In each of them, we want to remove a different gene. And for each of them, we want to measure the profile. And this is exactly what we do. We take the cells, first in a dish. Shin will explain in a second how it works in an animal. We take the cells and we deliver to them the CRISPR reagents that will, in any cell, eliminate a different gene. Then we let them grow and do their business. And at the end of the experiment, we collect all of those cells and we use the technique of single-cell RNA-seq to measure this profile, this calling card in each individual cell. And because we can measure each cell separately, we could run all of the experiment when the cells were together with each other. This is going to matter a very great deal. Then we're going to look at the calling card and we say, this is what happened. When we eliminate this gene, the cell changed in one way. When we eliminated that gene, the cells changed in a different way. That's in a dish. A dish is not where disease happens. Disease happens inside the body. So now we need to move from the dish to the animal. Yeah, so in this particular uh, project and paper that was published last year, um, it was the first application and um, sort of adapting what Aviv just described, this really powerful technology, and apply that to a question in psychiatric disorder, in particular in the case of autism spectrum disorder. And we were very grateful um, to work with geneticists who worked very hard in the past almost two decades. And now we know um, hundreds, probably even thousands of risk genes are contributing to this autism spectrum disorder risks. But studying hundreds and thousands of risk genes and making individual model will be very costly. So what we're thinking, how do we scalably really take a lot of advantage of perturb-seq to um, do this experiment? But importantly, we know that psychiatric disorders such as autism has a strong developmental origin, and we cannot just do this in an adult tissue already differentiated culture. We need to sort of do it in the context of a developing brain when these disorders are manifested or these risk genes are actually functioning. So um, very similar to what Aviv just described, but what we did is inject these perturbations early in utero in the embryonic um, developing context. And at that time, the brain is not formed yet. What you have there is basically a lining of a lot of neuronal stem cells. Then we let the development happen in vivo in utero for about two weeks. And these are the times that all these cells, perturbed or unperturbed, will go on and differentiate and generate this myriad of fabulous cell type diversity in the brain. But the great thing is because perturb, uh, perturbation happened very early and all these clones of cells are coming out as cellular progeny will also carry the perturbation. And two weeks later, we can go in and use the fantastic single cell analysis to ask, 
for each of the risk gene, with or without the perturbation, whether that changed all these calling cards and gene signatures that Abib described. And that will allow us to not looking at one or two risk genes, but a panel of risk genes and do this experiment and find out within each of the cell types, what our individual perturbation do. Yeah. That's great. And I know you had a, a big team helping you, which it sounds like it was a lot of work. So I'm sure it, it did require a big team helping you. So I'm, now I'm going to pivot to asking an in the weeds question, since I one of the uh, projects I'm working on is animal models of ASD. So I was really interested in this paper. So you mentioned in the paper that you look for signs that the pool you introduced cause undergrowth, basically, or, or problems with neurons. But one of the um, genes, at least one of the genes you picked, CHD8, is actually linked to an overgrowth syndrome in uh, children with autism that they seem to develop too many neurons. And I was just wondering if you would have been able to see that in your model. Yeah, so in this particular case, um, we analyzed the perturbation of like postnatal day seven. And this is a time that, um, you know, most of the cells were born in the cortex, but not matured yet. So we're looking at not only the neurons, but also the glia cells. And very surprisingly, oligodendrocytes, it's the cell population that we saw the CHDA perturbation leads to a maturation phenotype. And oligodendrocyte maturation differentiation takes almost three months, even in rodent models. So in our data set, at least, oligodendrocyte is a pretty rare population and underrepresented. And if we were just taking these cells and bulk sequencing them, I doubt that we will have much of a power to detect this very subtle um, phenotype. And as you know, autism is not really a lethal disorder. It yeah, is really yeah. a functional disorder. So it really emphasized the almost a requirement for high resolution and high content phenotypic readout, like single cell RNA sequencing that help us to focus on a particular cell type and assign these molecular differences into the perturbation. Yeah, I thought that was really cool. I would love to see what happened over time. That would be really, that would be fascinating. So, and that's a great power of something like this is that you can go on to to, to have so many experiments over time. I mean, that's, that's why this is so important. So um, did you have, did the study go as you expected it to or were there surprises or challenges along the way? You're both laughing. So I'm gonna take that as a no. <laughs> yes, there were surprises. <laughs> Tell us about what What fun would that be in science if everything was a foregone conclusion? Um, I don't know, Shin, if you want to, if you want to start and then I can add color. Yeah, no, totally. And as I said, I was trained as a neuroscientist. So I used to be very neuro-focused. I was trying very hard to look at the neuronal differences, which we do observe, right, in the perturb-seq data. But I was genuinely surprised to see that glia cells, and these include um, astrocytes as well as oligodendrocytes that we just discussed, and these cell types are all directly impacted by several of these regions perturbation. And to me, it's really interesting. It's not as surprising because looking back, many of these risk genes, they express very broadly um, their transcription factor chromatin modifier. So they do have the capacity to alter more than just the neuronal cell type as well as other cell types. Um, but for me, um, thinking about how to gaining more mechanistic insights in the future and better model these mutations, it's really important to know what cell types, um, they are actually the true sites of action for these risk gene and, and their perturbations. And knowing that they can impact not only neuron, but also glial cell type, for me, it's, it's eye-opening, it's very humbling. So I'll highlight two surprises. The first one, it doesn't always go worse than you expect. Sometimes it goes better than you expect. So on the experimental side, I think it worked in lightning speed. 
And this is really because of the complementary and exceptional technical expertise between Fang Zhang and his expertise in CRISPR, Xin and Paula and their expertise in neuroscience, and also Joshua Levine and Shiana Diconis, who are real experts in single-cell RNA-seq. And this is not... Today, when people do a lot of these experiments, this was several years ago, and this was a difficult experiment to execute. So seeing those people come together and just like, boom, the data is there, is really impressive. The other thing that I would highlight, which I don't know, again, if it's a surprise, but it is maybe different than what people immediately look for. Obviously, the first thing that we asked was whether some cells are just missing, right? We just don't have them, or we just have tons of them, and that's not what you get. And I would say that's not what you would expect to get with human genetics, because if a loss of function mutation that exists in living humans led to a complete loss of all astrocytes, there wouldn't be living humans. And so that's always the difficulty with human genetics, even in this case, which these are de novo loss of function mutations mostly, even with, even with those, you cannot expect those kinds of effects. And so we really had to shift our attention computationally also in the analysis to look for what we call gene programs, not the ways in which it's a neuron or it's an astrocyte or even a subset of astrocytes, but subtler changes that occur within the cells or maybe just within a subpopulation of cells or a gradient across the cells in how they shift and change as a result of the perturbation. And that really led us to insights into the biology that would be happening in those cells, which Shin already highlighted, the astrocytes and other kinds of glia. Yeah, I cannot agree with you more. Those are the kind of things that we have to move towards, right, is seeing different shifts in cells. And absolutely, yeah, that's so important. So uh, did you do, either of you or anyone on the paper, did you do any kind of specific science communication around this study? And how did it go? I'm letting Shin take this one. She, you're yeah. Beautiful, you had your beautiful um, animations and movies, and you did amazing science communications for this one. Yeah, we were very excited, um, and in part because I think this topic, studying psychiatric disorder, is really a question that's dear to many people's heart, and also because um, you know applying these really, really cool and truly cutting edge um, and challenging experiment to a sets of risk genes that was just literally published last year is really the tipping points of like we feel like the technology development and the biological uh, mechanistic study can can sort of um, um, get together and have a real impact. So we were very fortunate that um, our paper um, was uh, after it's published was actually um, um, chose to be covered. Uh, we have a really interesting sort of interview with the Harvard Gazette um, article and, and throughout these communication, um, I actually talked to some of my friends from grad school who are really excited in making a little animation to describe all these processes that were just um, um, sort of, you know, seemingly very abstract, but they actually can be really interesting when visualize how different cell types were organized in different brain and layers and how are they you know, shooting into little droplets and RNA being made and perturbation being happening. So I really enjoy um, sort of having that process, making this video, which I'm happy to share later. Um, and, and after I posted it and shared this video to some of my friends, many people reached out. And, and um, I think that's the, where the true impact of the science coming from is that not only we generated these data and gaining more insights into a question that we couldn't before, but also we're attracting young generations and people who are interested in these questions and they can come in and ask new questions and building on these foundations. And that's really exciting for me. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's great. Uh, like you said, I mean, I think that's what is so wonderful about this paper is it is more of a foundational methods paper. And uh, that's exactly right. It can inspire people to take this and and adapt it to their own way. So how easily adaptable is this set of methods to labs around the world, do you think? I think they are highly adaptable. Um, the two, two key the three key components that you, the four key components that you need in order to do them, only one of them is bespoke, and that is the biological system. Meaning, of course, if you're studying tumors, you need a model with tumors. If you're studying brain disorders, you need to know how to work in the brain. But fortunately, if that's what you're studying, you already have that in hand. The other pieces are all modular. There's a vector. It's an agile. You can just order it, and CRISPR is an extremely democratized technology. Single-cell RNA-seq is an extremely democratized technology. You can now conduct it. There's many protocols, many, many papers. Everything is, everything is in, at your fingertips. And then the third component is actually the computation and the analytics once the data comes back. And again, there's lots of packages on how to do the analysis. And in particular, we have used particular tools in this study, and they're all available in code, so people can reuse that code as well. So I would say it's highly adoptable and it's highly adaptable, meaning you can also shift it for other types of needs that you might have. Not everything is a loss of function. You might want to do editing. You might want to do overexpression. There's many CRISPR reagents for these kinds of purposes, and all of them can be coupled with single-cell RNA-seq, which is a very general kind of reader. Yeah, that's fantastic. You can't, wait you can't to see however, one. replicate Qing so easily. That's right. <laughs> Which leads me into the last question. That's a perfect segue. So, Shin, I know you were a postdoc during the time covered in this paper, so I want to mention that you're starting up your own lab at Scripps in July 2021, and you're hiring, and people should look you up there. So I got that in. Uh, what did this process teach you about research that you'll take with you into your career? Yeah, there are many things I would say. First is really the power of collaboration and working with people who have absolutely complementary skill sets. And for me, as a trainee through this process, I'm forever indebted to my mentors, um, and Aviv particularly, without whom this project really wouldn't have been possible. And it really inspired me um, to adopt a similar sort of approach in my own lab as a, a junior um, investigator to be able to sort of connect with people when I'm talking about not just the technique differences, but also the scientific intellectual um, foundation, because I think Potipsy wouldn't have happened if we were working sort of very independently and only connect um, through a particular given experiment. We were all talking and intellectually, everybody knows where everyone's talking about. Um, and I was working with a, a fabulous computational biologist, um, Sean Simmons, but we were talking very early on, even in the experimental design side, so that we design the experiment properly so that an analytical framework can, can happen very seamlessly. So um, one big take home lesson is um, to be able to connect with experts and learn from each other. And this is also the process that um, make the science very fun. And I will comment on that. Um, last point that we've raised is anyone's interested in doing any form of in vivo experiment, please find me on my website. I'll be happy to show you and teach you how to do these experiments. Um, and it will be great to collaborate in any form and shape. And Aviv, what did you learn that it has helped you with your career? Yeah, so, so this study and several others, but this in particular, really had an impact for me in realizing that the time has come to really shift in terms of where you want to see the results of the science and that we are much closer now to an impact on human disease and on patients 
than we were before. So things that were not just that they were basic research, but they were basic research for basic questions can now be basic research, but for human biology and human disease. And the gap is no longer a gap. And so that was very motivating for me in moving to Genentech and trying to see how we can bring these kinds of insights to make medicines for patients. Many diseases, a lot of unmet need, including in autism spectrum disorders as in the study, but also in many other diseases. And feeling that we now have these tools at our fingertips and many more tools that are coming was a big motivator for me. Oh, that's so great. Well, again, thank you both so much for being here. It's been a pleasure to talk to you and have a good day. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us.